Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Seeker Plus. I'm your host, Julian Huguet, and as your host, it is my duty to dig into really cool topics to see what I can find for you. Dig? Get it? Because we're talking about archaeology today, and I'm sorry, but as your host, it is also my duty to supply nonstop puns. I'm sorry, I don't make the rules here. So, archaeology. We're going to talk about some of the coolest discoveries made recently in the field and get into the insane futuristic technology that's completely revolutionizing it. Because archaeology often gets overlooked in the big science headlines, but it's literally the study of everything we know about humans of the past. And it takes a lot of careful insight, investigation, and plenty of creativity to interpret the things that we've left behind. So, before we get into all that, I want to answer a couple of big hows related to what archaeology is and what it actually involves. Like, how do archaeologists know where to dig? I mean, there can't be that many treasure maps, can there? How do they know how old things are? How do they know what's significant and what might be something unimportant, like trash? Is trash important? Ultimately, the goal of archaeology is to find out about historic humans and their lives, and to answer these questions about how they lived, what they ate, what they did for fun, what they believed in, and how they communicated. But beyond just facts about the past, archaeologists are tasked with interpreting them to gain a deeper understanding of why some communities flourished and some failed. That and to keep golden idols and crystal skulls out of the reach of the bad guys. It belongs in a museum! I'm on a horse. Indy was the dog's name. Okay. So, how does this all go down? Well, the field of archaeology is based around something called the archaeological record. Think of it as the big book of time chronicling who lived where and what they were up to. Unlike a lot of other sciences that involve hands-on experiments and interactions with living people, archaeology is forced to rely on found objects and evidence of activity, which can make it tricky to find concrete answers. This archaeological record is made up of all the things people have left behind, including their trash, and their tools, their buildings, even their bones. So that's step one in Archaeology 101. Collect and observe stuff. Step two, organize the stuff. So once you've found evidence of previous humans, all of it can be sorted into categories. There are artifacts, which is a term you've probably heard before, but it officially means a simple object that shows modification or workmanship by a human, as opposed to a natural or untouched object. So think arrowheads or dishes. Then there's ecofacts. Gotta love it when the etymology is that clear, right? Artifacts, ecofacts. Ecofacts are unmodified biological remains related to human use. A good example of ecofacts would be animal bones or plant residue from human food preparation, but charcoal from fires would qualify as well. And then we have features, that's the bigger stuff, and this category includes non-portable human objects like walls or fire pits. They still scream, hey, humans were here and this is proof, but they're bigger than an artifact. And lastly, you zoom all the way out and you have the archaeological site where all of this stuff is found. Great, so once you've established what evidence of past humans exists and that it belongs in the archaeological record, the next logical question is when? When in the record should we place all of this so that it starts to make sense in context? 
This is where archaeology starts to get really cool and sciencey. Let's say that you're digging a new foundation in your backyard and you find a piece of sweet-looking pottery. How would an archaeologist know if it was evidence of some ancient civilization or some crusty old mug from a team-building exercise getaway from the early 2000s? Luckily, there are some immediate rules of thumb that you can use before you have to break out the heavy tech. First up, we have the law of superposition. Now, when I think about superposition, my mind immediately jumps to quantum mechanics and I become scared. But in archaeology, the law of superposition is much more approachable, thank goodness. It says that layers of sediment are formed in order, so that the layer at the bottom is the oldest and the layer at the top is the youngest, and I guess the layer in the middle is middle-aged and going through a midlife crisis. But it's pretty straightforward. Old dirt at the bottom, new dirt at the top. It's the same with geology. So. If you found this piece of pottery pretty deep in the ground, it's likely to be a lot older than if you found it near the surface. This is called relativity dating, not to be confused with dating your relative. If you know how old the surrounding rock layer is or the dates of other objects found in the same layer, that gives you a bit more information. But there's an even more accurate way to go, known as chronometric or absolute dating, which relies on physical or chemical measurements. In the mid-20th century, chemistry professor Willard Libby found out that organic materials could be dated by measuring the decay of the radioactive isotope carbon-14. Side note, Libby had previously worked on the Manhattan Project, so this massive leap forward for archaeology is an interesting offshoot from all that bomb research. Although, ironically, the testing of nuclear weapons later on distorted the scale used in dating archaeological objects because of the artificially high background levels of carbon-14 that it caused, but I digress. So, how does a radioactive measurement mean that we can figure out how old archaeological stuff actually is? It works like this. Radiocarbon dating uses isotopes of carbon to date samples. An isotope is just a variation of an element that has the same number of protons but different numbers of neutrons. This means that the isotopes have different masses. The more neutrons, the more mass it's going to have, so you can have carbon and have these versions of it that are a little bit different from each other. The atomic mass is indicated in the number of the isotope. Carbon-12 has 6 protons and 6 neutrons. Carbon-13, 6 protons, 7 neutrons. These are both considered stable isotopes. But if the nucleus gets too heavy, like with carbon-14, where there are 8 neutrons to the 6 protons, then the isotope is unstable, meaning that it will disintegrate or decay over time by emitting radiation. Okay, so bear with me, we're going to get back to the cool Indiana Jones jungle dig discovery stuff shortly, but you better believe he'd be a huge fan of radiocarbon dating. And not just because it helped the Allies win World War II, in a weird tangential way. Anyway, radiocarbon, or carbon-14, is made in the atmosphere. This is a process that involves nitrogen and cosmic radiation, and it's eventually oxidized into 14CO2. This mixes with the 12CO2 that's also in the atmosphere, and this mixture is taken in by plants through photosynthesis. It's important to note that all plants take in the same ratio of carbon-14 to carbon-12 as the atmosphere. When the plant, animal, or person dies, it's cut off from the carbon cycle, creating a time capsule of sorts with a steadily decaying carbon-14 count. When the plant, animal, or person dies, the radiocarbon will start to decrease and decay, and this process happens regardless of temperature or chemical interactions. 
It takes about 5,730 years for half of the carbon-14 atoms in a sample to decay, and this is called the half-life of the isotope. Scientists can measure the amount of carbon-14 left over and gauge how long ago the plant or animal or human died. Most absolute dating techniques use this radioactive decay method, but there are some others out there that depend on other phenomena and are specific to unique materials. Notably, one of my favorites is dendrochronology, which you probably know as the study of tree rings to see how old a tree is and what those years were like. Or my other favorite, geezernology, where you can tell how old your grandpa is based on the height of his belt. And don't worry, he'll, he'll tell you what those years were like. They were hard, it was snowing all the time, everything was uphill. Anyway, using multiple timescales like this is a good way to gut check the dates that an archaeologist gets and make sure that it's as accurate as possible. But now, I want to get into what makes archaeology so sweet in the first place. And that's the discoveries, the shipwrecks, the mummies, unopened tombs, lost cities in the jungle, buried treasure. This also feels like a good time to talk about whether, in all of this, we should be digging up ancient people and the objects that once supported their livelihoods in the first place. I mean, archaeological digs haven't always gone down in the most ethical ways. That might be because archaeology really came into its own as an academic discipline in the 19th century, right around the same time that modern nation-states were emerging. Bound up in colonial ideologies from the beginning, the field was made up largely of European men who were fine with disrupting ancient sites, disregarding local customs, and basically just taking whatever they pleased. It's a great tragedy how so many incredible artifacts and remains have been stolen or mistreated or just plain lost all around the world. So I think we can all agree that this whole finders keepers approach to archaeology isn't the move. It's a bad look today. This has led to calls for many museums to return artifacts to the places and countries they were taken from. For example, in the late 19th century, invading British troops looted thousands of objects from the Benin Kingdom, now present-day Nigeria. Nigeria has been asking for the return since the country gained independence from the British in 1960, yet many museums have yet to fulfill their request. There's no denying it's a complicated and divided issue. There are people who think disturbing any human burial site is wrong, even if it's done respectfully for scientific reasons. Some think it depends on the beliefs of the cultures of the group in question, and there are groups actively working to approach archaeology from a decolonial lens, acknowledging how colonial domination was a huge piece of early archaeology. And at the same time, some believe that archaeology will teach modern humans lessons that could really help inform our decisions about the future. One example I found was a National Geographic article about archaeologists that study how diseases affected people in the past. Dr. Sharon DeWitt, a professor of the University of South Carolina, was looking into the Black Death, and through analysis of the teeth on skeletons, she was able to debunk the notion that the disease affected people indiscriminately. She found that it actually affected older people more than those who were younger. This is something that might help in future encounters with the plague, which, yes, is still around. Scary. DeWitt also said something about whether we should dig up historic humans that I found interesting. She said, and I quote, that written records are mostly biased towards wealthy individuals and men, especially if we're talking about the medieval period. If we want to know anything about the experience of women, children, or poor people, very often the only way we can get at this is by looking at skeletal data. So, in a way, 
studying these populations that were excluded from those historical texts can be a way to restore their stories to the present, even stories from the very recent past that have been hidden. One notable example of this was the 2021 discovery of the remains of hundreds of indigenous children in various residential school sites in Canada. I'm going to link to some more in-depth reporting on this in the show notes. One of these sites was found in an investigation by the Cowess's First Nation in the Saskatchewan province, according to the leader of the nation, Chief Cadmus Delorme, and it was done using ground-penetrating radar. This discovery not only functions as evidence of this tragic part of Canada's past, but it also brings international attention to something First Nation people have been denied for too long. The last of these schools shut down in 1997, and there are still many people alive today living with the trauma of this residential school system, and they're finally being heard because of this discovery. Archaeologist Larry Zimmerman put it this way in the earlier National Geographic article I mentioned. We've come to a point in American society that we recognize we do science for people. Their concerns sometimes have to come first, even if it's a matter of sacrifice from the scientific community's side. Which leads me to some of the greatest recent discoveries in archaeology. When I started researching this topic, I thought that all the great finds had already been found. But no less than 10 minutes into my search, I realize we're still finding new things all the time and unraveling the mysteries of those findings. Here's one example I'm pretty into. There have been hundreds of mummies found in the Tarim Basin in western China. I know, I say mummies, pretty much everybody thinks Egypt, right? So when these mummies were first discovered in the early 20th century, archaeologists couldn't figure out who these people were. These mummies have puzzled experts for a few other reasons. First, they had a sort of Western appearance to them. They wore felt and wool clothing. They had agriculture that included cattle, sheep, and goats. Second, at this site, the mummies were buried in boat coffins in the middle of a desert. See, this is where archaeology gets really fun when you're looking at the archaeological record in China where, or rather when, would you place these mummified remains? Some scholars thought that they were the descendants of Bronze Age herders. Others thought maybe early farmers from Central Asia. To solve the mystery, a group of researchers from five different universities got together and analyzed the genomes of 13 of the earliest known Tarim Basin mummies, dating back to about 2100 to 1700 BCE. It was the first genomic study of this kind in the region and includes some of the earliest human remains in the area. What they found didn't line up with any of the theories of who these humans were. It turned out that the people weren't visitors to the region from elsewhere. They actually appeared to be direct descendants of a local group of people known as ancient North Eurasians who disappeared by the end of the last ice age. This means that human settlement in the area goes back 11,000 years, and their gene pool was completely isolated, meaning that even though this group incorporated cultural elements like cattle and clothing from other people, they never mingled with them. As one of the lead researchers put it, this group was remarkably cosmopolitan, which is a compliment I hope people say about me when they dig me up in 11,000 years and look at my teeth and my wardrobe. But this isn't the only timeline-shattering discovery that has been made in the last couple of years, not by a long shot. And some of these headlines lately have been downright badass. Like this massive bone circle found in Russia that contains the skeletons of at least 60 different woolly mammoths, plus the bones of Ice Age reindeer, wolves, 
foxes and bears. Like, what was going on here? Were you people living in mammoth bone houses? I have a million follow-up questions. It's so hardcore. I love it. Or how about a discovery in the Andes Mountains of a 9,000-year-old female hunter that suggests that women in the Americas hunted big game just like men? I mean, upsetting the whole me man, me hunt, you woman, you gather trope even just for one group of people is huge news. And analysis of other hunter burial sites in Peru is kind of saying you wrong. I think sometimes we have this tendency to think of early humans as uncivilized, uncultured, or just not advanced. But archaeology constantly proves otherwise. Early humans shared a lot, and they got around. What's amazing is just how much genetics and new technologies are letting us get more and more precise with our analysis. And the tech just keeps getting better. Could technology enable us to be less invasive in our approach to archaeology? The short answer is yes, and it's already helping with this. But the long answer is yes, plus lots of lasers. I know, you were probably wondering when we'd get to the lasers. It's all I'm ever wondering, to be honest. Archaeology professor Sarah Parkak paints an incredible picture of how futuristic tech could revolutionize the entire field of archaeology in the next hundred years or so. I'll link to her full article in the show notes because there's so much more that I'm not going to cover. But the gist is this. Picture, say, a dirt mound, maybe 500 square meters. We think there might be something incredible inside, but we don't know. Instead of digging carefully into the mound with shovels and brushes for, say, 40 years, a fleet of drones is deployed. The drones are equipped with thermal infrared, hyperspectral sensing systems, and LIDAR. More on LIDAR later. But basically, these drones have the systems to shoot lasers and detect architecture below the surface of the ground with incredible accuracy. Oh, and it only takes a few minutes to do. Then these 3D images could be analyzed by a technician to understand not only what the structure looks like underground, but also show in different colors how construction may have occurred in different phases. Computer models can get even more information by comparing these images to a database of similar ones. And remember, no digging at all has occurred at this point. From there, Parkhack elaborates if you wanted even more information, you could deploy another set of drones, this time with lasers that can drill tiny holes and shoot super tiny ultrasound probes into the mound. The ultrasound could help you build a model of structures from the inside, including the artifacts, coffins, and other materials. And then you send tiny robots down to collect DNA from bones or little material samples. Maybe even 3D print the artifacts that were scanned so they can be put in museums or brought to schools or put in replica buildings. They could even be printed in the same materials like lapis lazuli. It's so awesome. It, the more I talk about it, the more fired up I get. But really, the implications are incredible. I mean, think about just how much we could investigate without needing to clear intrusive permits for digging or risk damaging samples by exposing them to the elements or clumsy grad students. And there are so many scenarios where this could be helpful. One that pops to mind is cities like Rome, where civilizations have been building on top of one another for 10,000 years. It's quite a bit easier to dig out an abandoned pyramid in the middle of the desert compared to a buried temple in the middle of one of the busiest metropolitan cities in the world. In places like Rome, there's often a conflict between preservation of historic sites and, like, building better subways, stuff like that. So scans could help city planners decide where to dig for new construction projects. 
So while tiny excavation robots are the stuff of the future, LiDAR is very much a tool that's enabling these non-intrusive discoveries today. LiDAR is a remote sensing method that uses light in the form of a pulsed laser to measure ranges or distances to the Earth. It's usually deployed from the air by a plane or sometimes from a handheld device. Lasers shine from the device over the area that an archaeologist wants to map, and these lasers are essentially brief pulses of light. Then the instrument detects how long it takes for the light pulse to bounce back to it. That measurement tells it how far away the object is, and then those measurements are plotted with GPS. It's crazy precise. When that data is plugged into a computer, it can be used to 3D map the area. So if you're flying a helicopter over a dense jungle and using a regular film camera, you're just going to be able to see a top layer of trees. But LiDAR is able to see the trees and down into the dirt. This technology was first developed in the 1960s for the US military. LiDAR has also been used by NASA to map the surface of the moon back in the 1970s. And another major field where LiDAR is being used is in self-driving cars. It's just much more accurate at surveying in 3D space beyond what conventional cameras can capture. But spotting ancient sites using LiDAR is proving to be quite successful. Gone are the days of expeditions through swamps off of vague clues from mysterious strangers and smoke-filled bars. I assume that's how it used to be done. Just last year, an international team of scientists published findings that used LiDAR to discover a previously unknown site in Mexico. The site, known as Aguada Phoenix, has turned out to be the oldest and largest known structure built by the Mayan people. Its age and size has been upsetting preconceived notions that Mayan society grew gradually when, in reality, this discovery suggests that they came out of the gate fast with massive building projects 3,000 years ago, which is so cool. Hyperspectral imaging is another tool in play here. Yeah, hyperspectral. I didn't just make that up for a hyperbolic reason earlier. This entails measuring the spectral signatures of materials. Spectral signature is basically the chemical composition of an object. It's the same technique that astrophysicists use to figure out what chemicals are in supernovae out in space. It's why they're sometimes called galactic archaeologists. It works by collecting all the variations of the reflected electromagnetic radiation from an object and then plotting them out. When you compare this plot to the chemical signatures of different materials, voila, just like that, you know what something's made of. Okay, you got me. It's a bit more complicated than that, but you know, in short, voila, basically. Here's a couple things that this could tell us with the context to archaeology. Ceramics or metal production leaves a signature because it requires burning at super high temperatures, so that could tell archaeologists what kind of industry occurred in a place. Having a lot of bones in an area like an ancient cemetery changes the chemical composition of the soil, so a burial site could be found from above ground with this spectral imaging. Want to know whether a container you found is a lamp? Test it for signatures of burning oil or blubber. The creativity in using these tools is just astounding to me, and it's getting better and better. One super creative use of all this technology is in this project called SciArc, which is a nonprofit that's working furiously to digitally record and archive models of the world's most significant cultural heritage sites, particularly in current conflict zones or regions threatened by natural disasters and climate change. So, the future of archaeology is looking pretty great, but before we go, I had one last thing I wanted to know. When I think about human history and what out there has actually stood the test of time, I think of massive stone pyramids, of Mayan temples, great Roman structures. 
what about modern humans? How will we be remembered? Is digitally recording everything making our civilization more permanent or easier to erase? I'll leave you with this quote from our favorite futuristic archaeology expert, Sarah Parkak, on this notion. She said, Nothing ever disappears forever, it seems. Except socks. Well, there you have it. This was a massive topic for me to cover, and I could honestly see us coming back to it in the future at some point. That wasn't an archaeology pun, but it works. Thanks so much for spending this time with us, and I'll see you next time.